Hey there, animation lovers. Before we start the show today, we just wanted to ask for your help with something. If you're listening to this, then besides loving animation, you probably also love podcasts. In fact, there's probably a bunch of other podcasts that you love in addition to this one. But listen, it's easy to forget that podcasts are a relatively new forum and that many people don't know what they are, where to find them, or even how to listen. So throughout the month of March, the podcast community is trying to spread the word. This is where you come in. We're asking you to tell a friend or family member about a podcast they might love, maybe even this one, I don't know, maybe, and how to find and listen to it. Then tell us what you recommended using the hashtag tripod. That's hashtag T-R-Y-P-O-D. And together, we can combat podcast unawareness. Nick, 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 Nickelodeon. Nickelodeon Studios in Burbank, California. This is the Nickelodeon Animation Podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Hector Navarro. Welcome to the podcast. Our guest today is a veteran animation producer who's worked in the industry for over 25 years. She was a production manager on one of the very first Nicktoons ever, Ren and Stimpy. Ever heard of it? And since then has built pipelines and redesigned studios big and small like Warner Brothers Animation, Mattel, and is currently the general manager for Stupid Buddy Studios, overseeing the production of Robot Chicken and more. On top of all of that, she's the co-president of Women in Animation, an organization dedicated to advancing women in the field of animation. I'm honored today to be able to talk with Margaret M. Dean. My mom wrote a letter to Mattel when I was a kid saying, you guys should make a movie about Barbie. And and then years later, uh, there was uh, like Barbie animated projects coming out and direct to video, all those different things. And my mom takes credit for that. She's like, okay, (laughs) all right, I see what they did. Like she, you know, I'm like, mom, that's not, uh, but. uh, (laughs) It isn't how it's worked, but let her think it. Exactly. You never know. There's Um, some residual in there or something that you should be getting. (laughs) Oh, my mom would be thrilled to hear that, Marge. That's so funny. <laughs> this is really exciting. This is great. So, Marge, I want to start with talking about your love of animation. What were some of your inspirations when you were young? I, you know, actually, I was not a big animation fan when I was a kid. I mean, not that I didn't like it, sure. but I wouldn't say I know so many, uh, like, total nerd zealots, uh, animation <laughs> zealots, and I was not that. Um, you know, my current love of animation really comes from, uh, I, was a, I studied experimental film and video uh, in, in an art school down at UC San Diego. Cool. And um, I think it's really from that that I, I just got fascinated. I mean, because experimental film and video is animation. Yeah. And uh, so being able to, just having a love for visual especially the graphic visual um, and manipulation of images and mm-hmm. all of that is where it started. And then, and then put on top of that telling stories. Yeah. Um, that's really where I came, how I came to it. That's awesome. When you were studying experimental film, was any of that animation stop motion animation? I'm trying to think there was, <laughs> um, no, I was like working on an optical printer, and so I was cool. manipulating live action footage. Like I did do rotoscoping, yeah, and and then actually tried drawing, but I I, I don't draw. I'm not trained to be. <laughs> I'm more of a photographer type. But I did after getting my degree, uh, I moved to Alabama and became the executive director of the Alabama Filmmakers Co-op. Oh wow! And it was a NEA funded regional media center. 
unfortunately, is around the time Reagan became president, mm-hmm. and uh, he, he basically cut off any all NEA funding. Yeah. And so we were sort of cut loose, and in this little community where there was a lot of local support, but no more funding to do larger documentaries, which is what we had been doing. Yeah. So we realized we had to start creating programs for. Uh, the community, and we had a screen viewing series that we would do movies on the mountain, which was really kind of cool. But um, <laughs> what's movies on the mountain? Oh, we would do outdoor screenings. That's cool. Up on there's a big mountain in. I was in Huntsville, Alabama, and wow. so there was a big mountain uh, that had like log cabins and stuff on it. So cool. we would go up there, and that on the side beautiful. of this old church, it was yeah. it was exquisite. It was really <laughs> lovely evenings. But we also, I realized, I could teach animation. To yeah. kids, and that there was, uh, and at that point, you know, animation was really starting to take off, and uh, the kids were watching lots of animation, mm-hmm. and and so I just started putting together classes to ke- teach kids um, how to make their own animation, and so wow. that's where the stop motion came in because it was logical, and for them, what was very exciting would be to be able to make their toys move yeah <laughs> so we did a lot of uh, a lot of that which is what stupid buddies is all about really absolutely it's, it's a lot of making toys move how did you end up working on ren and stimpy after getting my degree in, the, in experimental film and video i mm-hmm. figured out that I was totally unemployable. <laughs> and so I was like, I got to figure out how to get money to make productions mm-hmm. and to make films. And that's what producers do. So I started looking into producer programs, and there were two that stood out. And one was at UCLA and one was at USC. So I got accepted at the UCLA program. And as part of that program, uh, they had a at the time, there was a, the Telluride Film Festival had a special student program, mm-hmm. and so I went. Our program was they would bring people who had come to the festival in to speak to students. So mm-hmm. there was one group of people they brought in that included Frank Marshall, Kathleen Kennedy, wow. and you know it was the whole Amblin gang. Yeah. And so uh, I'm sitting in a room mostly with young men, mm-hmm. and all of the questions are about. How do I get you to read my script? How yeah. do I get to a job as a director? Yeah. How do I get you to buy my movie? You know, and it just after, and I got really bored. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was like, all right, uh, I got to ask something else because I, I just can't take this anymore. I'm really so bored. <laughs> and so I raised my hand and I said, what do you think makes a good producer? And their faces lit up, and they went on with this like really, really brilliant discussion about what producing is and yeah. what producers do, and all this kind of stuff. And I, I could tell they were as relieved to have this conversation mm-hmm. as I was to hear it. <laughs> so after the whole thing was over, I was, you know, how you mingle around, right? Mm-hmm. After, and sometimes you go up and if you talk to the people who have been on stage. So I was like, all right, I got to do something. I, you know, I made a connection, and yeah. I could see that Frank Marshall, you know acknowledged me like he just you know I made eye contact with him and stuff so I just went for it you know I was like all right I got to go ask him some question I got to come up with a question that's going to close the deal yeah and you know make some sort of um, movement here and so and I had no idea what it was going to be I kept I was as I was walking towards him he looked at me and I'm going okay what's the question what's the question (laughs) and as soon as I came face to face with him uh, and looked him in the eye I just said what do you think about producing animation I have no idea where it came from. Wow. It just sort of popped out of my head. And uh, he was like, 
animation is the greatest it's the new thing and they got really excited and uh you know talked about you know the simpsons and yeah. roger rabbit and all this stuff and he said to me are you in la and i was like yeah i'm at ucla and he goes call my office it was like my hollywood moment happy happy joy joy happy happy joy joy happy happy joy joy happy happy joy joy so i called like it probably was a, over the course of a month Mm-hmm. I would call like every week. I would call. Yeah, I'm just calling back, and okay, he'll give you a call back, and and finally, I thought this guy is so busy. I mean, yeah. he's never going to call me back. <laughs> and I don't even. It's not like he's a rotten guy. He'll sure. never call me. He's just like I get what I have a glimpse of what the world is like that he's in. Mm-hmm. So I sent him a fax with my resume. And said, and in it just said, you know, we met at Telluride. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Blah blah blah. I just want an opportunity. I'd love to work in animation. If you could open a door, I'd work for free. I'll intern. You know, I'll, whatever. Yeah. And like the next day, I got a call from somebody else mm-hmm. who said Frank Marshall wanted me to call you. We have a show. Come over and work. You know, you can be an intern on Family Dog. And so I made a friend there. With the production coordinator, uh, Jim Ballantyne. Mm-hmm. And then they shipped the show off to Canada. Mm-hmm. And I went back to school and finished my degree. <laughs> but as I was getting ready to graduate, Jim told me that something was happening and that his position was going to change mm-hmm. on Ren and Stimpy. And uh, he might need my help. And Jim brought me on actually as a PA. What was it like to, to run around and work on Ren and Stimpy? It was... Uh, Wonderful, <laughs> hilarious, terrifying, <laughs> stressful. You know, it's yeah. it was an amazing group a t- group of talent. But also with that came a lot, especially for a production manager. Yeah, you know, a lot of challenges to be able to wrangle talented, emotional people who just had been traumatized. Yeah, you know, because <laughs> like when I and at the time, I personally was recently divorced. Mm-hmm. So and I was a single mom at this point with two young children. Oh my gosh. And so I walked into the room and I totally recognized the the energy in the room which was this is post divorce. <laughs> <laughs> What were some of your responsibilities as a production manager? Um, I was the keeper of the schedule, primarily, mm-hmm. and so so the workflow or the pipeline. And in that environment, especially, things were constantly in flux. Yeah. Because you depended on, I, mean, I don't even remember how many people we had, but I think it was like somewhere between 35 and 50 people. And day to day, one person didn't do something yeah. that they were supposed to do, it, it f- impacted everybody else. Yeah. And then that would mean a massive reshuffle of the schedule, you mm-hmm. know, or and then communicating with people or trying to solve problems to see how we can stay on track. Yeah. That production that was very different than subsequent productions that I've done in that we did a lot of the work ourselves, mm. you know, this we were doing much more of the work so and less steps. of it was being yeah. done overseas. So there was more tracking that was needed to be done wow. than, you know, what people do nowadays. So it was pretty intense. Yeah. It was also supervision of uh, the other people on the crew, you know, mm-hmm. because it wasn't just me. There was at least, <laughs> I don't know, six, seven other management people. Sure. So you must be a fantastic people person, Marge. <laughs> you must be so good at talking to people. Uh, I do all right. I do all right. Um, you know, I think my strong suit is, I mean, is that uh, I'm a trustworthy person. Mm-hmm. I'm an authentic person. I try anyway. Absolutely. You know, and so people know when they talk to me that I will tell them the truth. Yeah. You know, I don't really... 
I'm trying to think of the proper language. Sugarcoat it. I yes, guess. thank yeah. you. <laughs> I don't sugarcoat things, but I'm not. I'm also, you know, not. I think there's that balance of being able to, and and it's taken years. I mean, I wasn't as good at this, and I probably got myself in trouble by being a little too blunt. Sure. <laughs> um, so I've learned how to balance it with uh, being kind, but being direct, and yeah. and understanding that uh, everybody wants to do a good job, yeah. and the role of production is to help everybody on the team to be successful. What was your experience like working at Warner Brothers Animation? It was great. I, I think that was some of the most fun that I got to have. And part of it was I was allowed to move more into the creative realm. You know, I all my previous jobs as, you know, being the person focused on production management yeah. and pipeline and yeah. all that. And at Warner Brothers, I had such a good tie with um, the creative development team that cool. they they let me be involved in a lot of the discussions and the you know development of the new series and warner brothers had been in this uh you know, heyday, its previous time with heyday, and yeah. had budgets that reflect being in a heyday. <laughs> and people were spending lots of money, and I think it was a new era that was being brought in, and they needed to know, learn how to do shows at a much lower rate, which was more like the shows we were doing at Sony or the budgets that we had yeah. at Sony. They were, you know, almost half, probably slightly more than half of what Warner Brothers was paying. Wow. It was spending on their shows. So that was a lot of what uh, I did was I helped the people who were running production there to mm -hmm. uh, start to understand how they could do things less mm -hmm. expensively. Was a part of that was like new technologies? Because I know Flash mm -hmm. animation became a big thing. Was that a part of what you guys were doing? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And bringing in new technologies. Mucha Lucha, which is a show I'm, I'm really proud of. Yeah. Uh, initially, when they were talking about doing it, they were going to send it out to, uh, you know, some little small Flash studio in uh, New York. And I yeah. talked them out of it. I was like, this is because we had done... Uh, a short series, Lenore the Little Dead Girl, <laughs> at, um, when I was at Sony, mm -hmm. for the Sony Digital Group. Cool. And uh, that's where it became obvious to me, like, this was this golden tool that was yeah. going to make all the difference for us and, and actually make things really uh, possible and affordable, and mostly to be able to keep a lot of the animation here and to not have to ship it overseas. That's great. And uh, so I, I basically talked them into it, and I knew... A lot of the key players around town, you know, there were not very many at that time, mm -hmm. but those those guys became the core group of the uh, Flash team at Warner Brothers, cool. and then spun off and got hired in other places, and are now, you know, have their own studios yeah. or at Cartoon Network or yeah. any of the places. A lot of the people on El Tigre. Yeah, had come from Warner Brothers and had done the, had been involved in Mucha Lucha. That's right. That's so right. it was a uh, it was a very exciting time. What was it like to see feedback start to become more instantaneous from fans? What was it like to see maybe little communities and fandoms start being built around shows? Because you were working in animation when that wasn't necessarily the norm, and now it's the norm. Now on something like Robot Chicken, people are tweeting about something the second that it happens. What was it like for you to see the internet shape community and fandom like that? It's totally revolutionized the industry yeah um and it's going to continue and i don't even think we know how far it's going to go and i mean there is the impact and it gives a voice to the fans which mm -hmm. is really valuable and uh and it i think is impacting the development process mm. in that because a lot of people are now thinking about doing short 
shorts. Like for, you start off if you want to try out a property or a take on an existing property, mm-hmm. you could do a bunch of shorts, throw them out there, see how the fans respond. Before you go into the big, you know, development oh. and start producing the series and spend all that money and yeah. time and effort, and then you know you don't get that important feedback from the fans and get a sense of where they are. Yeah. So I think it's also opening up doors for independent people yeah. to be able to figure out how to get their stuff out there. I mean, there's still the hitch of you have to figure out how to market it since there's so much stuff out there yep um and how do you get your thing to pop out and then i also think it opens up a lot of avenues even for established studios to have a new conduit to get stuff out to people and the challenge for production is to try to figure out how to do that still pay the people who are working on it right a fair salary and you know let you know let them continue to earn money the way they can sure they do and um but still afford to be able to put content out into a venue that you probably are not going to see very much revenue from. Right. Yeah. You know, because most of the stuff that's out on the internet is more of a marketing device, and it and most yeah. of that content it comes out or is paid for by marketing budgets. Yeah. Like, is is that looked at as a tool to then sell merchandise, to sell toys, to sell a show later on down the line? Like you were saying, if a little short comes out beforehand, is that sort of how it's looked at? Yes, definitely. Yeah. All of those ways. And, and again, I, I think there's we're just at the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. I don't think we really know how this is going to change our viewing habits. And, yeah. you know, like, I think the other thing that's changed is, you know, the attention span is shorter. Yeah. You know, so people are, <laughs> and our people are very happy to look at something that's like less than a minute. So to sit and commit to 22 minutes or 45 minutes of content is like, it seems like... It's a big investment. I, yeah. And so it, I'm not saying it will go away. I think it will shift into another kind of uh, way of viewing. And mm-hmm. maybe we'll have, you know, the stuff you'll sit at home with your family and the bowl of popcorn and invest in yeah. a viewing. And then there's the stuff you'll look at in those split seconds while you're waiting <laughs> in line at the DMV. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really interested in your advice or opinion as the successful producer that you are talking about how to market something wow um because it's hard yeah it's really hard yeah Uh, and you have to kind of know what you're doing and that's and i'm probably not the person to talk about that (laughs) in the sense of uh, i'm not an expert in this and i rely on other people sure to uh, help me with that so if i was an artist and i had an idea that i really believed in and i wanted to get out there somehow and for whatever reason, didn't want to go the normal development route and right. try to sell it to a studio or a network or something like that, I would find somebody who's deeply entrenched in social media Cool. and, and get, them to, get them to help me. And there's a lot of actually small companies that, that are not so small anymore <laughs> that are doing this more and more, like the new forms. But there's even like phone companies, like Verizon has now got a network. Like I think you have to get in and start wow. like explore this world because it's a growing, quickly growing world. Uh, so there are other people besides Nickelodeon, Disney, and Cartoon yeah. Network who are looking for content yeah. and are you know happy to do you know are not willing to commit to big twenty two minute you know thirteen by twenty two minute orders, but may do. 
yeah. one two minute let you do a two minute thing and maybe <laughs> even help you pay it or pay for it or you just do it and you bring it to them and they'll put it out and see what happens and if it gets some traction and they have the marketing machine behind them yeah you know so yeah. people know who they are they go to their networks to watch and they know how mm-hmm. to i mean it's it's such a different it's like the math is different there yeah one of the things we <laughs> talk about a lot at uh stupid buddies is uh owning your audience i mean that's the beauty of the internet is mm-hmm. that you actually get to amass like that's what all the subscriptions are about mm-hmm. and you know like saying you have so many hits like i got one million hits or i have one million subscribers to my mm-hmm. youtube channel it's you own that audience and the people who are you know marketing people or advertising people know that if they put something on your channel you're going to get these people and then from what i hear and this is where we're right at the edge of what i know is uh there's also ways to working with people like facebook you can like actually they'll target like because they collect all that information about you they'll target certain posts for these people and you know knowing that and knowing that landscape and knowing the roadmap of how you do that and who you talk to it's huge it's a big mass of knowledge to have and experience yeah so an individual person yeah sitting by themselves who just thought of a great cartoon i i don't see that working just (laughs) if they do it by themselves unless they're that genius person who has figured all this out Warner Brothers, you said that it was a goal to try to keep animation stateside as opposed to having animation go overseas. Why was that something that was important to you? Why is that important for the industry? How does that affect artists here versus overseas? Well, I mean, really simply and uh, is there will be no artists if there are no jobs for them. Yeah. Like people need to get paid for what they do. And so you know, the more the work is uh, shipped away, the, the more our uh, animation culture here in Los Angeles diminishes. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I had an interesting conversation with somebody over at Disney Features, like some, you know, a high up person, and she was talking about even like in television, people have been outsourcing since the 60s. Like, yeah. you know, a lot of Hanna Barbera stuff, they figured out early on how to outsource. It was the only way they could afford to do animation yeah. for television. And, you know, Pretty much every show that I've worked on has had outsourcing involved in it. Sure. But feature has always been here, you know. And uh, so to have this person who is high up at Disney feature uh, lament that they can't find talent. Like, because there isn't enough consistent work in features to keep the talent in Los Angeles. And people are moving to other parts of the world where the work is going. Yeah. And in particular, Canada. And, you know, I have lots of good friends up there and I completely respect, you know, the people up there. Yeah. Yeah. But (laughs) they have decimated the Los Angeles, the U.S. animation business with the tax credits and the fact we have none Mm -hmm. and we just can't compete. And now it's so commonplace, uh, and even American studios are looking to set up in, or have set up in Canada. You mm-hmm. know, if you go to Vancouver, half the half the people in I'm exaggerating, of course. So mm-hmm. Lots of the people in Vancouver are expats, yeah, are Americans who have moved up there because that's where the work is. That's where the work is, yeah, yeah. And I think another really important approach to ensure that animation lives forever is to ensure that there's new voices and that there's representation and that there's diversity in animation. And I want to ask about the uh, women in animation's goal 
of uh, 50-50 by 2025? Sure. What we discovered was, uh, by doing a little bit of research, Mm -hmm. is that women, interestingly, make up probably on average 60 to 65% of animation programs. Like CalArt last year, yeah. CalArts last year announced, I think they were up to 72 or 73% female across the board in wow. all of their programs. And yet, when you look at who is working in the industry in creative roles, yeah. women make up, the most recent number is 23% yeah. of the creative. So the storyboard artists, the directors, yeah. the designers, you know, the CG modelers, all of those creative wow. roles, writers... Uh, creative producers, yeah, um, and the, of course the higher up the ladder, yeah. the positions even fewer. So yeah. you know, in those lower positions like assistants or animators or some design categories, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's it's more close to the closer to the twenty three percent. So it was looking at that discrepancy where we realized this is if women in animation could fix this, mm-hmm. it's really simple. If we could fix this everything would change. Yeah. You know, because then the female voice would be better represented. Yeah. And uh, and then that would change the nature of uh, animation, the art, but also animation, the industry. Absolutely. As uh, the child of immigrants, my family's from Mexico, and I was born and raised in the United States. Everything that I've ever loved since I was a kid, whether it was animation or comic books, every single thing that I would be drawn to uh, had a majority of white males that were sort of, you know, just the majority of whatever that thing was. And I always like to use the analogy from um, the movie Ratatouille. The movie Ratatouille says in the beginning, anyone can cook. And by the end of that film, the message is, a good cook can come from anywhere. But to me, it's really important that uh, different types of voices are heard so that the thing that I love, whether it's animation or anything else, lives forever. Because if something is closed off, it will eventually die. It will eventually wither away because the old guard will keep it very protected and then it will disappear into nothingness. But why is it so important to have different types of voices represented in the creative side of animation? Well, I think you, I mean, I think you answered that question. (laughs) I mean, that was very beautiful, what you just said. To keep animation alive, to make animation better. Yeah. Um, I I think one of the things that that women in animation is, has recognized as our key contribution and that, and how we would benefit like the studios and the animation community is by giving them access to a greater range of talent. Mm -hmm. Um, And this, because of whatever the challenges are, you know, for women, for people of color, for anybody who is different to mm-hmm. try to break down that door, whatever it is that's making that difficult, it's hurting animation itself, yeah. you know, because it still continues to be a very limited. And like you said, you know, if you keep it limited like that, eventually it's going to shrivel up. Yeah. You know, and the one thing I do want to address that that you sort of alluded to before is you can find that talent anywhere. Yes. Right. But you have to look. You have to look, and that's that's what we're that's what we say to the studios. Um, yeah. You know, like I don't ask people to hire fifty percent women, mm-hmm. but if you're looking, if you're looking to fill slots, like make sure you're looking at fifty percent women. <laughs> if you start with that, I'm completely confident, a hundred percent confident. Yeah. You will hire more women Absolutely. if you'll find them. What was it like working at Mattel and overseeing the development of entertainment for some of their properties? Very interesting. Yeah. It was very interesting. It's a completely different 
culture than entertainment companies. Yeah. And uh, mostly because their core business is making toys, not making content. Yeah. And so they function much more like an agency or a marketing team. Mm. Um, and it is marketing that, I don't want to say controls, but mm -hmm. it's marketing that takes the lead in the company and in decisions and sure. all of that. What was it like designing stories and cartoon shows and direct-to-DVD movies based around properties that sometimes had built-in stories, sometimes not? Was that something that was decided and then it would be sent to you? You have to make a story out of this. It, it varies from property to property yeah. and also based on the age of the property. You know, mm. for example, Barbie's been around forever and I don't think they had actually thought of Barbie having a life or a backstory. Sure. And in fact, really fully creating a backstory for Barbie only happened in the last few years. And uh, before that, Barbie was really more of an actress or an avatar who would go into the movie, mm -hmm. would even have a different name, mm -hmm. and she would play some different roles. Mm -hmm. She would be a mermaid, she'd be a princess, she'd be whatever. But the other like side of that coin was Monster High, mm -hmm. and then later Ever After High, which was, you know, they were trying to replicate the success they had on Monster High, yeah. was that they created the characters and the storyline and the mythos around the characters as they were creating the toys. And mm. so by the time the toys came out, in fact, I think this was the first time content for Mattel, content came out before the toys came out. Oh, cool. And, and I happened to be... Which is how I ended up at Mattel, but I w was at Wild Brain, and we produced the first webisodes, the mo first Monster High webisodes. Wow. And, yeah, and so it was, you know, it was an interesting experiment for them, and I think, and it was totally successful. Cool. I mean, Monster High just to totally blew it out of the water, made them tons of monies, and actually started to challenge, uh, you know, Barbie's position. But it, so that's when they started going, you know, they got it. They got that having content and having like a rich history and yeah. a rich character development was a different approach to being able to, it sold more toys in a lot of ways yeah. when people were totally invested in, in this cult, this world that was being created. So, you know, both of those things happened differently. I mean, all of the brands, though, marketing had their hands on it. Always, like sure. I said, it's the the toys are the core business. So the marketing team who is orchestrating the selling of the toys, yeah. um, always had input on what was happening. Uh, we tried in uh, Playground Productions was our group, and we worked out elaborate systems with the marketing team. And we, uh, the one thing I really admired about Mattel was they actually do synergy. Like yeah. I've been every other company that I've been at. <laughs> they always talked about it. They say they do it, yeah. Yeah, nobody ever did it. Nobody, Not the way that Mattel did it. Yeah. And uh, there was hours and hours of off-sites and brainstorms, and they would bring all of the different groups. And at Mattel, they had everybody in one place, you mm -hmm. know, like, so they had publishing, they had packaging, they had toy design, they had marketing, they had us, you know, the content people. And then they started bringing in distribution. And, you know, so all of us would get together in a room, and we would start talking about, like, what's, what do they want to do with the toys? And toys would have been doing their research and developing what do they think are the next things that are coming up. And it really was this very orchestrated, yeah. Um, and but it was also really hard. Yeah. You know. <laughs> I love the Ricky Gervais show. Yeah. So funny. You're a producer on that. And also Happiness is a Warm Blanket, Charlie Brown. Yes. I love that. I love it too. How, how did you get involved in the Charlie Brown project? That's amazing. Um, I was uh, when I was at Wild Brain, mm -hmm. we uh, I moved up to San Francisco because Wild Brain, the studio was in San Francisco. Okay. 
It was founded there. That's where it had been for, I don't even know how long, how many years. <laughs> um, anyway, I got invited up to the Schultz place to Santa Rosa yeah. and sat down with them and uh, I, oh I know it is because they had hired uh, Andy Bell mm-hmm. who uh, I knew from Warner Brothers I had met him when I was at Warner Brothers and mm-hmm. he did some work with us and uh, and then they hired him to direct whatever the movie was that they were going to make Cool. and um, so I think he told them he found out I was at Wild Brain and he invited me up yeah. and they were like we want to do uh, a movie, you know, we have a DVD for Warner Brothers, and we want to spend $2.5 million. That's our budget. Yeah. And uh, we want to animate it all here. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and I was really blunt with them, and I was like, that, that will never work. You have to send it to Korea. You yeah. have to, you know, it's the only way. And I had just come off doing, like, 10 DVDs sure. for Warner Brothers, right? Sure. And so... It was like, I, I know how to do this. I know how yeah. to do a $2.5 million DVD, you know, yeah. 2D film. And initially, they decided to go with somebody else who I think had told them they could do it. Right. And I think that's what it was. And then I think they brought Andy in, and mm-hmm. Andy met this guy, and mm-hmm. and then somehow he was involved <laughs> in that conversation. He knew I had told him you can't do it. Yeah. And so he convinced them to come back to me Yeah. and, uh, <laughs> and Wild Brain and to uh, do it. So, yeah. so then we did. Well, it turned out great. Thank it's, it's you. It's a lovely little project. I, I really love it. I loved working on that. Yeah. That was so... I, and I still am in touch with uh, the Schultz yeah. folks up there. Yeah. I feel like I have these three big dogs in my life. You know, mm-hmm. Ren, Scooby, and Snoopy. <laughs> and Snoopy, the three big dogs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, they're like the best dogs in animation. Oh, they're, yeah. they're, they are cartoon royalty, yeah. these dogs. Absolutely. Yeah. Marge, this has been fantastic, by the way. I feel, oh, thanks. I, I want to ask something that uh, I, I ask a lot of our guests, which is, if you could give yourself advice when you were young and starting out, what would you say to yourself? I would probably say, don't worry too much. It's all going to work out. <laughs> trust yourself. Yeah. You know, trust your instincts. Yeah. Trust your friends. That's awesome. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, Marge, thank you so much for coming in. This was uh, this was fantastic, and we really, really appreciate it. Well, thanks. It was my pleasure. It was yeah. really fun. Well, that was our conversation with Margaret Dean. Huge thanks to Margaret for coming in and sharing some of her insight and her stories and her history. Guys, head over to nickanimationpodcast.com for all of our episodes so you don't miss any. And behind-the-scenes, cool, exciting, extra stuff. Wherever you're getting your podcast from, wherever you're listening or watching, leave us a review or a comment if you'd like. It really helps us out. Thanks to the awesome crew who puts this podcast together. This podcast is produced by... Jonathan Highlander. Dana vasquez Eberhardt, Kelly Smith. Andrew Hubner. Original music by Useful Creatures. This week's episode edited by... Josh Caldwell. Jonathan Highlander. All of the incredible social media for our podcast podcast is made by Narbe Manassians, Sammy Armager, David Watson, and thanks to the man who works at controls and makes me sound better than I have a right to, Manny Gralva. Until next time, thanks for listening to the Nickelodeon Animation Podcast, and keep watching cartoons. Cartoons.